Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, everyone. It's Rena Jadav, and welcome to another episode of Healthier, where we are on a mission to helping you get your health back naturally. And today, we welcome Megan Ramos. Hi, Megan. Welcome. Hi, Rena. Hi, everyone listening. It's great to be here. Uh, Megan is a clinical educator and researcher. She is the CEO and co-founder of the Intensive Dietary Management Program. She designed the IDM program after she was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. She believes that both what you eat and when you eat matters. And so her program focuses on when to eat. Uh, They utilize therapeutic fasting as well as time-restricted eating protocols with the patients to help them reverse their type 2 diabetes and achieve sustainable weight loss, which, God, if you're like me, you know how hard that can be. Uh, They encourage their patients to eat real foods, adopt a low-carb lifestyle in addition to fasting. Megan, tell me a little bit about why did you start IDM? What's the genesis of the program? My colleague, uh, Dr. Jason Fung, and I, our background's in nephrology. I was from the research side of things. He was the nephrologist. And together, we focused on research that dealt with uh, preventative medicine. So trying to diagnose kidney disease earlier so we can be proactive and limit the number of people who need transplants or have to go on dialysis. But most of our patients had diabetic kidney disease, and it didn't matter. You could diagnose kidney disease on day one that the kidneys stopped functioning 100%, but it didn't matter. There was nothing you could do for the kidneys other than to treat the diabetes. So it was getting really frustrating. My colleague Jason, you know, at the time, he was almost 40. What am I doing with my life? I'm just watching people die. And then I was going through some mid-20 personal trauma (laughs) and turmoil. And in a year, I gained like 80 pounds. And that 80 pounds came along with diabetes. Mind you, when I was really skinny, I had fatty liver and polycystic ovarian syndrome too. So I've always been obese, but I've been skinny fat and then I was just fat, fat. So between 26 and 27, I became fat, fat, and I became diabetic. And I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes right before my 27th birthday. And to me, that was just like the worst thing ever. I've had cancer, and that wasn't as scary as this, you know, because at least with cancer, there's hope, especially when you catch it early. You know, my diabetes was diagnosed early, but there's no hope. And it was just, I just broke down. Like even my family doctor, uh, she didn't know how to deal with me because I was so hysterical. And she's given me lots of bad news over the years. <laughs> but like this was just terrible. And uh, so I got it, I got it together. You know, I was like, I wasn't going to die from this. And I knew Jason was just so frustrated too. And he had been doing all kinds of research. And I approached him and he, you know, I'm a, I'm Canadian. I'm like eighth generation Canadian, but my heritage is Irish and Italian. I grew up eating carbs on carbs on carbs. I grew up in one of the first generations where both parents were working. So pizza night Mondays, Chinese mm-hmm. food Friday.
Fridays. Like we ate a few times at home. I was brought up in the first generation where you brought snacks to school for recess time. You know, my dad didn't grow up that way. Uh, so it was totally different eating habits. I was in bad shape young and um, I emotionally dependent on food. You know, I watched, my father's a trial lawyer and I watched daddy come home and be angry. Daddy eat pasta and drink chocolate milk and have some chocolate cake and eat potato chips and daddy was really happy. So I learned to cope with all life's problems eating that way. That's why I got so obese from 26 to 27. I was going through a lot personally. So I found comfort in McDonald's mm -hmm. and, um, so I, Jason was particularly interested in um, fasting and religion because we had just gone through another cycle of Ramadan in our clinic. It was oh. the most multicultural diversity yes. in the world. 30% of our patients participate in Ramadan. And, he, you know, he was sort of at the point where he was just trying to think of anything and he noticed a lot of these patients had improved blood sugar levels episodes of hypoglycemia having to come off their insulin as a result and a friend of his uh, simultaneously was fasting for religious reasons she wasn't fasting for ramadan but other religious reasons and noticed some improvement in her blood sugar levels too so he gave me a stack of literature on fasting and religion and i started reading it and i said okay you've got 27 years of bad eating habits not knowing how to eat properly um emotionally depending on everything with food and I was going through a divorce at the time so um I just was completely emotionally dependent on chicken nuggets at the time and I thought okay all right let's figure out you know if I can't change what I eat right away let me figure out uh, when I eat that part maybe if I you know get my meal timing under control I can get to a healthier position life will be emotionally a bit better and then I can start work on undoing 27 years or horrific eating habits and behavioral habits. Uh, so I did. So I slowly, I, I, I did make huge drastic changes in my diet within six months, but my diet's been a real evolution over the last eight years. Um, but uh, within that six months, I had no PCOS, no fatty liver, no diabetes. Wow. I lost 60 of the 80 pounds that I had gained. I've lost 86 pounds to date, um, and I've kept it off uh, for several years now. And that was just, you know, I, my eating wasn't perfect. Like each week was better than the week before, and each month was better. Um, but really changing what I ate had, or when I ate, had such a dramatic impact. And, you know, we looking at our patient population and sure, a lot of them grew up like my grandmother, no multiple snacks a day. Mm -hmm. They ate butter and eggs. So really getting them to make changes to their diet wasn't going to be too hard, but the, the whole behavioral aspect of it and just how society is overwhelmed with sugar nowadays. And these people are all sick. Like they're all on the verge of dialysis or needing transplants and, it was just going to take too long with them through diet. We started off with diet first, but it was taking too long. And, you know, if I had that results in six months without my diet being perfect yet, you know, this is what we needed to do because these people all needed to get better in six months. So they were going to be dead or dependent on an organ from a 
someone or a machine to keep them alive. Um, so we wanted to really uh, attack these people aggressively because it takes time to change their eating habits. And uh, so I had a lot of luck. Our colleagues all thought we were crazy, but they saw how great my experience was, so they became open-minded. And then all of my research patients, at the time I was doing a study with 2,800 patients, and yeah. they saw me come back to life or saw me living for the first time. And they said, we don't care what you're doing. We want to try it. We're not even hungry in the morning time. We just eat because they tell us we have to. Uh, so, so true. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day, I think is something we made up. And now we are forcing people to eat when they're not hungry, which doesn't make yeah. sense. That's how, that's how we started. So our first uh, clinic day was on June 5th, 2012. I've worked with Jason since I was a kid, um, a very little kid. Actually, I was 15, but mind you, he was a kid too at the time. He's a brand new doctor. Um, and uh, so we, we have a, a strong friendship. And uh, so we, we formulated this program sort of based on my experiences and then shaped uh, or shaped it around my experience and then molded it to each individual different lifestyles different personality types different disease protocols and we developed the intensive dietary management program beautiful thank you for sharing that so let's talk about different kinds of fasting because that's the core of your program is when to eat mm -hmm. intermittent fasting is clearly one kind of fasting how do you define fasting megan fasting to us you know, we really look at Fasting is a therapeutic uh, experience to us. Um, so with fasting, we define fasting as a period of time where you abstain from consuming anything in the body that's going to raise your insulin levels. Now, most of the patients we work with are obese or have type 2 diabetes, and both of those conditions occur because of toxic levels of insulin in the body. So we really want to avoid putting in substances in the body for a period of time that elevate those insulin levels. So water is definitely a safe bet. Uh, tea and coffee are also safe bets if they're black. Uh, they're not going to have any real effect on hormonal levels. Coffee does in some individuals, but not all. Uh, so, you know, we sort of see how an individual does on coffee. We would know they're having a hormonal response to coffee if their blood sugar levels go up dramatically within two hours of drinking that cup of coffee. So, and some people experience that and some people don't. Uh, and uh, and tea seems to be fairly benign, uh, different herbal teas. When a patient is new to fasting, we encourage them to drink some bone broth, but then we have them cut that out on the fasting day. I just, uh, you know, I will admittedly say I had lunch before this podcast because I'm going to be doing some, some fasting. I just got back from a trip and I'm trying to heal my body after having a bit of an infection getting home. And uh, I had bone broth at my lunch, but I'm not going to have bone broth at my fast. I think bone broth is wonderful for you and it's a great tool when you're new to fasting, but it's a training wheel and you should eliminate the training wheel. Bone broth has a potential to have an insulin response. So we like to keep the fluids pretty low. We want to avoid putting anything in the body that has an insulin response. And we also want to avoid putting stuff in the body that provides the body with energy because we want the body to be forced to utilize our own energy stores. Yeah. All of the excess fat in our body, it's just like, if you think of your fat pouches, there's just like stored canisters of gasoline. 
leftover fuel from previous meals that you never use, so you stored it in the canister. And um, we want to force our bodies to utilize that. That makes a lot of sense. How many hours of fasting do you typically do yourself? And then we can talk about what the program entails. Yeah, so um, I am myself, and this is still today what we um is sort of our gold standard for most of our patients while they're combating metabolic syndrome is uh three three fasts a week of uh, ranging from 24 to 42 hours so we we found that the best frequency that allows people to sort of out fast their diet is uh, about three times a week um you know it again it takes people a long time to combat their dietary issues and behavioral issues. So you need to be able to outfast the diet a little bit. That occasional, you know, bowl of pasta that might happen at your grandma's house on a Sunday. Um, that you know, eventually those habits, everything changes. You know, I'm Italian who hasn't had pasta in like four years. You know, my grandmother on her deathbed didn't couldn't understand. <laughs> um, but you know, and for me, I never thought I would get there. Like it just seemed so foreign. Uh, and I was even low carb for a few years before giving that up. So we, I did the, the three 24 to 42 hour fasts a week. I would pick Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, my busiest days at work. I could easily do a 42 hour fast on a Monday because you feast more on the weekend socially. So I was very satiated. Uh, Wednesday, middle of the week, just crazy trying to get professional and personal stuff organized for the weekend. So it was usually easy to do a 42 hour fast on a Wednesday. Fridays, I would do a 42 hour fast if I was just gonna go home and put on my pajamas and put on a face mask and sort of zone out and uh, for the evening. But if I was gonna, to, if I wanted to be social and engage with friends or family, I would just do a 24 hour fast. So I just fast throughout my workday, made my workday a whole, a whole lot more efficient. Uh, and I got to leave work a little bit early because I would work through lunch and get stuff done and be able to beat traffic on the way home, get ready, and then meet friends or family at a restaurant and be relaxed and able to enjoy my evening. And that's still what we do today. That's We have found that, hands down, that works the best with patients. Of course, when I hit all my target goals, my weight loss goals, my fatty lift, all my PCOS, uh, like my fertility hormones. I went from perimenopausal to super fertile. Um, I, my diabetes, when everything improved, uh, my appetite was so different than what it was before. Like I used to have a hard time going 30 minutes without eating right leading up to my diabetes diagnosis. Like 30 minutes felt so long. I was paralyzed with you know, thoughts of hunger um, or desire to eat, not physical, but mental. It was, it was really, uh, really a struggle, but I'm just not super hungry. So I typically eat once a day, sort of Monday through Friday. Friday, sometimes we eat twice, my husband and I. On the weekends, we usually eat twice. Uh, we have longer days on the weekends. It's more relaxing. It's more social. Um, so we find that a lot of patients follow the same same uh, experience that I have. You know, their hormones are regulated. My insulin used to be through the roof, which was a good sign that my hunger hormone, my primary hunger hormone, ghrelin, was also through the roof. Um, but once all of that's regulated, you know, you eat. You eat to feel well, you're eating delicious, good fatty, low carb foods. It's very satiating. Uh, so I usually, my husband and I usually eat sort of between about one o'clock and four o'clock, just sort of depending on the nature of our day and my clinic schedule. And, uh, 
And that's usually how we, we go Monday through Friday. We, we can't imagine eating more now. So it's, it's really one meal fun. a day. So it's basically yeah. one meal a day between one to four. And then how many calories in that one meal, Megan? I eat pretty well. Um, I would say probably eat close to about 13 to 1500 calories in, okay. in that one meal. I'm five foot one. I'm about 105 pounds. Okay. So I'm petite. My husband does eat a lot more than me. He's, he's uh, six, four. He's a oh, big wow. guy. Yeah. He probably eats about twice as much as I do at a serving, um, or at a meal. Uh, so I find that I'm very satiated following a, I follow a ketogenic diet and uh, around somewhere between 13 to 1500. And so almost five days a week, you mentioned three, three fasts, but really it's 42 hour fast. So almost I'd say it sounds like four to five days a week you're not eating. Well, with a 42-hour fast, so 42 hours would be from dinner on Sunday to lunch on Tuesday. Right. So Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, four days of the week, you're eating twice. I see. Um, but on, yeah, Monday, uh, Wednesday, Friday, for example, you would just fast those days. Okay, got it, got it. What is, so, so that's for someone who's looking to lose a lot of weight. How does that compare to intermittent fasting, which is typically a 16 or a 14 to 16 well, hour window. Talk a little bit about that. Where um, where definitions of intermittent fasting differ. I was actually just giving another podcast earlier today. And at our clinic, you know, we find with most people who have a history of dieting, trouble keeping weight off, poor metabolic rates, 16 or 18 hours of fasting, that's what we have people do on a regular day. We don't consider that to be intermittent fasting or really fasting at all. We just consider that to be a healthy way or healthy approach to a day that you're going to eat. So for us, the most benign intermittent fast we do is 24 hours. And even in the 24-hour mark, you don't see a whole lot of the therapeutic benefits of fasting. Those really don't start to kick in till around hours 33 to 36. So when you're looking for anti-aging properties of fasting, so autophagy, where you get that deep cellular recycling, the body breaking down old sick proteins and repairing new proteins, or creating new proteins, not repairing, creating new proteins, um, just, you know, ridding the body of bad toxic cells. Uh, so for a cancer patient, you know, looking to to try to starve off their cancer with fasting, you're looking at it doing about somewhere between 30 to 36 hours of fasting to achieve those kind of therapeutic benefits. We think that 16 to 18 hours is it's just great for a healthy person looking to maintain their health. 18 hours is about what we do on weekends, Saturday and Sundays. That's what we consider in our program to be an eating day, just not overfueling the body and uh, letting the body have a chance to to rest. I have a young uncle. Um, he's in his early 40s. And recently, he wanted to lose about you know, 20 pounds. And he's never had a history of dieting. And his eating habits aren't all that poor. So I recommended sort of a 16-8 lifestyle to him. And he works at home. And he can eat breakfast and lunch and skip dinner because that works better for his life. And he lost his 20 pounds in a couple of months. But he had no metabolic issues. Um, so it's just a healthy way of living you know, to prevent disease and to maintain good health. But we really don't see it have a dramatic impact on, you know, severe diabetes, even benign diabetes, and, and people with a lot of hyperinsulinemia. So really high levels of insulin causing disease within the body. And is that safe also for someone maybe on the thinner side? So 
is it safe for all levels of, of fitness and health or is it primarily that only if you're obese should you be going into a fast that's 36 to 42 hours? No, it's absolutely. I work with a lot of professional athletes too. Mm. So someone who's, who's talked publicly about working with us is George St. Pierre. He's um, world middleweight, heavyweight champion. I don't know, of uh, the, <laughs> the UFC. Sorry, George, if you're listening. Um, and uh, he's got a bunch, a bunch of belts and he's uh, going to potentially be the greatest MMA fighter in history. Nice. And he's of course like 7% body fat if you look at him. But um, and he was just recently on a Joe Rogan podcast talking and he does like 48 hours of fasting four days of fasting he just stays hydrated he feels so good and it's helped a lot with his colitis so now he's feeling good he's able to fight again and train like regular again and you know we keep a close eye on on his body composition his whole team does I mean he's a pretty successful guy and he's got quite the team and his body composition hasn't changed like he's maintained his muscle mass he's actually improved his muscle mass because he's been able to go back to training so he's been doing typically like a four to five day fast once a month and a 48 hour fast once a week and a bunch of 24 hour fasts to help treat his colitis. I work with a lot of professional baseball players that are mostly pitchers and have a lot of inflammation in their shoulder. And these guys again are like, 10% body fat or less. Uh, there's been a lot of one that's been a bit more, um, but they're typically in good shape. Um, but we fast for their shoulders, you know, of course with, with our metabolic patients, we encourage them to stop eating on their eating days at satiation. Um, and then they'll fast on their fasting days with these very thin people that we work with. We encourage them to eat a little bit beyond satiation and not largely beyond satiation, like eat an extra two ounces of steak at dinner, add an extra tablespoon of olive oil to your salad, like eat a little bit more on your eating days. Uh, don't eat till you feel uncomfortable, but just a little bit extra till you just don't want to eat anymore. Just so you get a little bit more fat in the system and that just to help carry them over into their fasting days. So it works really well. I tell you, we do have a lot of people who come to us. I've worked with over 8,000 people now doing fasting over the last six years. And a lot of them are sick, but there are a lot of people who are healthy who say, nope, I watched this happen to my grandmother, my parents. No way. I, I know that food, those medications, all that's poisonous. So I want to stay healthy. And so periodically we'll do longer fasts with them. And, you know, until they get into sort of the, their more ideal shape, uh, even if they're like, say, a female at 25% body fat, you know, until they get to the optimal shape that they'd like to be in, even though they're in a good starting position, we'll do more aggressive fasts and then we'll scale it down. Um, so for someone who's just thin and healthy and looking to stay that way, we'll have them do 16-8 or 18-6 on a regular basis. And then maybe once or twice a week do a 24-hour fast and maybe once or twice a year try to do something a little bit beyond 24 hours, maybe three days, maybe five days, maybe up to seven days of fasting just a few times throughout the year. But what are some of the myths that you found in fasting? I've heard quite a few, you know, before we started recording, you were sharing some very interesting thoughts on uh, some of the myths that are out there. Share those with our audience, please. 
So I guess myths, um, myths are biggest beefs that I have with fasting. I find this is just general with North American um, society is that we have the attitude that if something's good for us, it must be great for us in excess. And that's never the case. That's never the case with anything in life. So when Jason and I first started our fasting clinic and utilizing our fasting protocol several years ago with patients, no, fasting wasn't accepted. But fast forward to 2018, um, my husband's American, and we live in Canada, but we were in the U.S., uh, in the state of Florida for the holidays, and I, it was like January 2nd, and my mother-in-law frantically was calling me from the bedroom to come downstairs, and I go, and she's showing me every morning talk show, fasting, 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 it's all the rage. Um, it was a diet of 2018, um, or they were calling it time-restricted eating. And uh, she's like, look, it's so exciting. It's on the news. Like people are finally accepting like what you do. So now that fasting's become popular and people are understanding the benefits of a little bit of fasting, they have the mentality that a lot of fasting is better for them. Um, so when one day of fasting might be good for you, the mentality that I'm seeing with patients, with clients I work with, with people on social media, in groups that I'm part of, or our groups, it's that if one day is good, 120 days must be good. And that's so not the case. It's just as important to feast as it is to fast. Um, you know, we're not a very bright species, mankind. <laughs> um, I mean, we're not bad, um, but we're not right. But we're a highly adaptable species. And that's why we've been such a successful species on this planet is we can adapt to any situation. Now I just had one patient, um, I'm going to out him, his name's Paul. Now he's all over our social media talking about his experience fasting and yesterday he was saying how he can't wait to be in our next book. Um, he wants us to share a story with the world. Well Paul had the goal of doing a 120 day fast which is something we never ever recommend ever. Um, we would usually stop a person after fasting for seven days. And even then a seven day fast is something we recommend only a, at most a couple times a year, a few times a year. So, and that's for someone in really bad shape. So Paul had this idea that he wanted to do 120 days. Um, so we, of course we told him that we didn't condone it and uh, we documented that and let him know we were going <laughs> to document that. Um, but at the same time, Paul had a lot of common sense too. Uh, and we knew that he wasn't really going to put himself in harm's way. There's no need to try to institutionalize this man. Um, so Paul completed his 120 days, no problem, but his fast thought working for him around day 90 like his body had adapted to being in a fasted state and so you know it's you always have to keep the body guessing and this is why intermittent fasting is so great you eat you eat you don't eat the body's like what the heck's going on it's mm -hmm. too it's a balance and it's that balance that people have lost you know I, there's these groups on Facebook of 60 day fasters. And well, you know, in some cases, you know, fasting can be very dangerous for 60 days. And in some cases, it's probably not. You don't, I don't know you need to know each patient's story. I could probably fast perfectly fine for 60 days, given what I know about my own health. Um, but uh, it's just, it's just counterproductive. So now in clinic, I'm seeing a lot of my patients catch on with these social media fads of fasting for 30 days or 90 days. And so Paul was lucky. 
Paul didn't have any real negative side effects other than he fasted for an extra 30 days with no real benefit. Um, but these other patients I'm working with are getting some nutrient deficiencies. Mm -hmm. And that nutrient deficiencies, putting so much stress on their body, they're having a huge cortisol response. Exactly. So then they have an insulin response. So they're like on day 30 of a fast and they don't understand why their blood sugars are going up, why they're gaining weight. And it's like, well, your body needs nutrients and you can't do that. It's counterproductive. So that's just, you know, when it comes to everything, I've just been come so much more aware of this, you know, looking at the checkouts that, you know, pharmacies or grocery stores, you know, it's always like lose 20 pounds in two weeks, uh, all these things, people always looking to do something extreme to get extreme results. And uh, no, no one's patient anymore. And just let things happen step by step. Uh, and, and, you know, I say the patients will cry and they'll say, it's been a week and I haven't lost 10 pounds. I'm only losing two pounds. But two pounds a week over the course of a year, that's it's over 100 pounds. It's an exceptional amount of weight. Um, so it's, you know, it's people need to zoom out, see the big picture and, and be more sensible. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on Bulletproof Coffee? Bulletproof Coffee is a meal. It is a meal. It's, you know, I'm the, the debate on whether coffee is good or bad for you. Um, the, the research out there, I know it's a controversial subject amongst different health groups. We, in our clinic, we stand back, we let people have their coffee, but we warn them if, that they could have a hormonal response. And if they do, we switch them to different sources of caffeine, like matcha tea um, instead. So, uh, or they'll just quit it all together. Um, so we sort of lay back or lay off of, you know, drink to, to drink or to not drink coffee. But when you're adding all that fat to it, it's a meal. Uh, when you have a bulletproof coffee, it takes the body like five to six hours to burn through that energy from the coffee. So a lot of people um, take it in the morning when they fast because I think it you know, will help suppress their appetite throughout the day. But they're just fueling themselves like they're not fasting for that five to six hours right. after they consume it. What about MCT oil just by itself? So it would be the same, right? It's again fuel. It is a fuel. It's a, okay. it's a fatty fuel. Yeah. Okay. So in your fast, you don't permit anything that would fuel the body. So that would include any kind of fruit. Um, Cause some people say, Oh, a fast, but I can eat berries or I can eat kind of local glycemic. Okay. So your fast is a pure fast, which means it's maybe herbal teas, herbal teas, um, maybe coffee if you're okay with it. Okay. At the start, bone broth, we encourage that for the first okay. two weeks. Okay, okay. And then after that, it's, you're just on water. Um, what scientific results have you seen? What can you share with our audience, those who are listening, going, is this right for me? Describe the ideal person it's for. And then what scientific results have you seen? So the, I think it's pretty ideal for pretty much anybody uh, giving any condition that they're combating to work on the timing of their meals and just to give their body a chance to rest and reset. Um, so there's very few instances where I don't think some degree of fasting is beneficial. There's no instances actually. In terms of doing more aggressive intermittent fasting from a therapeutic standpoint, um, people, uh, that ideal person would be 
more on the healthier side of things. You know, someone who comes to us with congestive heart failure um, or is on dialysis, we stick to 24 hours of fasting or less. But someone who's going to do more like 36 or 42 hours of fasting, they can still be on a heavy cocktail of medication, um, but they, they can cook for themselves if need be. They can get to their doctor's appointments on their own. So people that are still in, in relatively decent shape despite having a significant medical history. Um, I, I really think I've worked with all different kinds of people with all different kinds of backgrounds, um, uh, age backgrounds, different genders, uh, different medical conditions, and just changing around the meal timing makes a huge huge different in everyone. In terms of clinical results, we're in the midst of publishing that. We had some issues getting research ethic board approval years ago. Um, fasting was too taboo, or taboo, sorry, rather. Um, nowadays, it's not very taboo, so we have been granted um, research ethic board approval. So we'll be presenting our data at a conference next year in Colorado. Um, we have some case reports uh, that have been published in the Journal of Insulin Resistance, and we have a case series on a, on a group of patients with type 2 diabetes who are all insulin-dependent diabetics who had full diabetes reversal, and that's going to be published in BMJ. It was accepted, and it's going to be published next month. Very exciting. Let's talk about diabetes. I've actually heard this from several diabetics who said, oh, we can't do a fasting boot camp, or we can't fast because we have insulin issues. What are your thoughts on that? Because that's counter to what you're sharing here. Well, with these type 2 diabetics, uh, your bodies produce so much insulin that it no longer utilizes your insulin at all. It's taken offense to your own insulin. It's developed resistance to your own insulin. Just like when you spend so much time with, with one individual, um, day in and day out. I, I'll pick on my husband here for a second. I met him when he was living in California. Um, we saw each other every other weekend for about three years until he could immigrate to Canada. So every, you know, every weekend was perfect. You missed him. Life was good. And now I live with him. And uh, we just got... <laughs> we, I, I love him. He's a great husband. But we, we recently, I had a, we were on a work trip together and he had to go on to Greece and I had to come home and I'm kind of enjoying my time alone. Like absence makes the heart grow fonder and you can get on someone's nerves if you spend a lot of time with them and traveling for two weeks nonstop is that's a decent amount of time. Uh, <laughs> but so you're, you're, we get overwhelmed, you know, we, we get overexposed to certain things. Like if you ate steak every day for a month, it, you know, you probably would get completely turned off of steak. Um, so it's the same thing. Our, our cells get turned off of our own insulin. So we just sit up our bodies and, you know, have, are saturated with insulin, and that's how we end up having high blood sugar levels. The insulin is supposed to take the blood sugar and let it into the cell, but the cell won't communicate with the insulin anymore, so the sugar never gets into the cell. So, you know, a type 2 diabetics, they just have very, very high blood sugar levels all of the time, and their insulin no longer works. So even though they have insulin issues, their insulin's not going to be driving their blood sugar levels down. If it was, they wouldn't have type 2 diabetes. So they end up being very, having these very high blood sugar levels and requiring medication to help lower the blood sugar levels. So, you know, we, we really spend a lot of time seeing our patients and educating our patients 
on this so they understand what the risks are and aren't when it, they start fasting. So, you know, we, we tell them, you know, you are going to start fasting, but we're not going to give you the same medications that are going to keep your blood sugar levels down low. We're going to, you know, implement dietary strategies and fasts to burn down the insulin levels and to burn down the sugar levels rather than you taking the medication. And, you know, sometimes if the patient's really skeptical, we'll say, you know, depending on the circumstance, if it's a more mild circumstance, we'll just don't take your metformin tomorrow and see what happens with your blood sugar levels and their blood sugar levels go up a little bit. Um, so if they're not taking their medication and their blood sugar levels go up, you know, if they go up. They're, and they fast, they're not going to come down, you know, to a point that's dangerous for them. And most patients realize that. Not every, most people aren't super compliant with their medication. They know if they don't take it and they eat, their blood sugar level is going to go up super, super high. So most people are willing to try it out. You know, most of the patients that we get are sick and tired of being sick or they're sick and tired of taking care of sick family members. Right. Um, and uh, and they're willing to try something even for a, for a day. So we do, every patient that comes into our program does about six hours of educational training uh, before they get started. Um, with the fasting so they understand what's going on in the body and they understand the nature of hyperinsulinemia and type 2 diabetes. But that's good to know that there aren't significant issues that would prevent someone who's diabetic and on insulin from proceeding with one of your recommended fasts. No, you just have to be monitored. Someone's got to adjust your medications. All right, let's talk about the stuff that people don't know about what happens when you fast. For example, um, I have some friends that did a seven-day fast after Dr. Zach Bush had come down to my home and done a heel circle presentation. And um, one of the things they talked about was the fact that um, you end up with constipation. They said, well, God, I wish someone had told me that before I did this fast, I need to be careful about what I'm putting in. You know, I shouldn't be having a burger the night before because um, th that was a tough seven days and, and they both talked about that same experience. So what does someone need to know before they start fasting with respect to what is it going to do to their gut, their digestion, their microbiome, and more importantly, their bowel movement? So with that, we, we do see constipation, but we more often than not see diarrhea because when you first start fasting, your insulin levels drop a lot. And when you have that kind of reduction in your insulin, it signals to your kidneys to release a lot of water. And so some, you urinate out a lot, but sometimes it's so much water that you have, have quite severe diarrhea. So we educate patients before they start to fast that if this starts to happen, it's just an early thing to happen throughout their fasting journey. It's not something that's going to persist much beyond the first few days of their fasting. So to utilize psyllium husk as a crutch, putting the psyllium husk in water, um, letting it sort of soak in water um, for about 15 minutes and then drinking it just to help bulk up the stools in the gut and uh, then prevent the diarrhea. And then after about, you know, the first week into fasting, cutting it out. And usually the diarrhea doesn't persist uh, much beyond the first few days. 
In terms of constipation, you know, if you're not putting anything in, there's not a whole lot to come out um, in the first place. Um, but most people have issues with constipation when they're fasting because they have problems absorbing magnesium in their gut in the first place. And most of North America has magnesium deficiency. So we find if we can just bring the person's magnesium levels up to normal, um, we don't have any issues with constipation during a fasted state. So, and it's really tough to actually get a good measure of someone's tissue magnesium levels. And the research that's been done sort of on the general North American population, when they actually do tissue testing for magnesium shows that we have a huge issue with magnesium deficiency. So we really focus on our patients taking different magnesium supplementations just to help get their magnesium levels up and that regulates the bowel movements altogether. You know, we encourage our patients to eat a very low carb, moderate protein, higher fat meal. We, in some of the patients, encourage more potassium to be consumed at that meal. Things like avocados, salmon, spinach, mushrooms before a fast. And some patients have to avoid those foods depending on their medications and medical history. Um, so we do talk about sort of pre-fasting meals, but keeping the garbage out of the diet for the first few days, entering into the fast, starting on magnesium supplementation, the first two days before entering into a fast, um, if need be, and then talking about the consequences of, of diarrhea during the fast. What magnesium do you recommend? So uh, for general everyone, we recommend magnesium glycinate or magnesium malate. Uh, we start our patients at 400 milligrams, and then depending on their symptoms, we'll move it up. Um, if need be. For patients who are just more prone to constipation, I was one of those patients. Um, I use a blend of magnesium citrate and magnesium glycinate. Magnesium citrate gets absorbed by the body fairly well, but not, um, not as well as glycinate or malate, so it can trigger some bowel movements too. So when you take citrates, you get... you. You do get some good magnesium absorption into your system, but you get just enough to push through a bowel movement if something's stuck. Uh, so with those patients who are prone to constipation, we usually recommend that they take both the citrate and the glycinate or malate. What about acacia flower instead of, or acacia fiber <laughs> instead of uh, psyllium husk? That would be perfectly fine as well. And some of our patients take chia seeds because they just have them at home. And that's also fine for them to supplement with. Their body doesn't, your body doesn't actually absorb very adequate fat from chia seeds in their whole form. They just tend to move their way out of your system. Uh, so you're, you're not getting a whole lot of energy from that. Oh, interesting. So on a fast, on a seven-day fast, you could actually do just soaked up chia seed and... And that would not interfere with the fast? Well, it, not, not super, not in a super way. Um, it would have some effects on autophagy. It wouldn't be something I'd ever recommend to a cancer neurological patient. Uh, but for someone who's just looking to treat type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, it wouldn't be that counterproductive. Okay. And what about psyllium husk and, and acacia for someone who's looking for autophagy? So um, that would also interfere with autophagy, okay. not on a greater scale, not on as great of a scale, um, but uh, it would be perfectly fine um, when you're combating the initial induction into fasting. So even if I have a patient with cancer and they start to experience diarrhea, it's only going to last for a few days. 
let them take some psyllium husk. And then once it's done, make sure that they stop taking the psyllium husk and go back to water. Got it. What do you think of Prolod, the fasting mimicking diet? Um, so, uh, my, my colleague Jason's actually written some, uh, blog posts on the fasting mimicking diet. Um, the fasting mimicking diet is done in such a way that you, you really reduce insulin levels when you are, um, eating. Uh, but we've just, uh, I know a lot of people that have used it. It hasn't worked. We don't think it targets the hormones quite the same and it doesn't force the body to use a sort of energy, especially in people who have very low, low metabolic rates. I do know many people who have tried it. I've worked with many people who have tried it. And in some cases, if the person's healthy enough and has a great metabolic rate and it, it ends up being successful for them. But in a lot of the cases, we have very sick hormonally warped uh, individuals with very low metabolic rates. And it, we've just found that it doesn't work so effectively on really achieving great hormonal regulation. Wonderful. Well, this has been fascinating, very insightful. What are your last words of advice for someone who's never done fasting before, is considering it? What would you say? Um, you know, our motto is progress, not perfection. Um, you know, simply by not snacking at nighttime, try not to snack between mealtimes, listening to your body. If it's morning and you're not hungry, skip breakfast, see what happens to the body. Do it slow and gradually. Um, we always equate fasting to being like a muscle. Well, you know, I was just away from the gym for three weeks. I went back to the gym and I'm a very sore woman right now because I decided to pick up where I left off and I ignored my trainer's advice to, to maybe just do some stretching and take it easy. And now I'm suffering the consequences of it. You know, fasting is like a muscle and you need to treat it that way. So if you've never fasted before, start out gradually, cut it snacks. When you're feeling really comfortable with that, then maybe start skipping meals naturally. Let your body guide you and then maybe try to challenge yourself once you feel more comfortable and you realize that you're not going to go hypoglycemic, that your medications have come down and then try to do some, some serious fasting. Any coping hacks? So I've done fasting. I do intermittent fasting now, which is I eat in an eight hour window. So I have an early dinner by 6, 7 p.m. and then I'll eat around 11 the next day, uh, which is fine. So this is, this is the norm for me now. I don't even think of it as a fasting. I just think of it that's how I eat. I did try fasting and I didn't go very far. I actually did the prolon diet as well and had a really hard time on it. So what coping mechanisms can you recommend or what hacks work for people like me that I, I'm on the thinner side, I'm 115, I'm 5'7". And um, I don't know, I feel like my body just, just freaks out when I deprive it. I think the best thing is to stay hydrated and don't forget that sodium is important. So adding some a pinch of salt throughout the day periodically to your fluid can definitely help. You know, we often um, mistake, uh, mistake our desire to eat um, for our, what our body needs in terms of electrolytes. 
minutes. And you know, just it's amazing how you know patients will say, "We're so hungry after you were, we work out," and I'll say, "We'll have some salty water after you work out," and instantly they're not hungry anymore. So just be very mindful of electrolytes. Just a pinch here and there throughout the day can can help a great deal. Chances are it's electrolytes, especially if you're on the thinner side um, of things and you're more active, you're going to be burning through more electrolytes. So keep up with the magnesium, introduce some sodium periodically, and that should really help your body not want to eat. If your sodium levels are low, your body's going to trigger you to want to eat so you can get that sodium through food. It's a response by the body uh, to trigger appetite in when sodium levels are low. So just give your body what it needs, just the sodium, and, and see if that does the trick. You know, we'll encourage patients, if you really feel like you need to eat, have some salty water or even have a little bit of bone broth, and then wait half an hour, see how you feel. And then, of course, eat if you still feel really famished and like it's just too physically, mentally hard for you. But most people have the salt feel fine, and they're able to carry on with their fasts. What about something like a product like a liquid IV, which also includes sugar in its electrolyte base? So there's, you know, a lot of different mm -hmm. electrolyte products out there. Will the sugar in something like that throw off a fast? Yes, it will. Absolutely. Okay. okay. So it's just a salt water, not necessarily the full liquid IV type of electrolytes product. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Well, this has been very insightful again, Megan. Thank you so much. Share some information about your website. And of course, those of you who are listening, please note we're going to put this in your in the show notes on Health Bootcamp. So if you're listening to this on a podcast, keep in mind, you've got to check out the Health Bootcamp site for the show notes for the links. All right, Megan, what, what's the, where can people find you? You can find out information about our program, our podcasts, and our books at uh, www.idmprogram.com. So uh, we have we have a couple different programs. We have a podcast. We're on summer hiatus right now, but we'll be back in the fall. Um, and my colleague has published a few books on uh, on fasting and insulin and uh, meal timing, the obesity code, the diabetes code, and the complete guide to fasting. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate it for the rest of you. I'll see you on another podcast soon. Okay. If you liked this, make sure you share. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.